welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I am here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. And Black Friday is over. We all have our discounted board games. They're probably well on their way, if not already in hand, which means more games are being played, and this hobby is getting spread further around the world, and we will soon take over the world. Black Friday is a holiday invented by the Americans to celebrate their landing at Plymouth Rock on an LCD television, yes? Yes. Okay. The other funny story about Black Friday is that I was getting emails from my Pronto Bus company in Italy with Black Friday deals. So not only here in Canada have we adopted Black Friday, but even over in Italy, they are now adopting Black Friday sales. That is amazing. So clearly, in order to save the money, you should have flown back to Italy because otherwise you're going to miss those discounted bus Exactly. How else am I going to get cheap bus rides to the airport? How could you afford not to? I know. So, like I said earlier, podcast about board games. We mix up the format every week. So this week... We're going to talk about the games we played, news and why it doesn't matter, our feature game of the week, which this week is Gugong, and our topic of the week, which is resolving rules disputes. Well, before we get into that, we should probably return to the beginning of the show segment that we have yet to successfully name, which is where we take a look back at what we reviewed, well, I'd say last year, but again, you got us started too early, so this is, this is Forever Ruined. So this is the Nameless Forever Ruined segment. And the brought to you by Michael Walker, <laughs> conceived of, brought to you by, scripted and edited by Michael Walker. Uh, the game we, the third game we reviewed ever was a game called Hansa Teutonica, which coincidentally designed by Andrea Stedding, who is also the person who designed Gagong, which is what we're going to be talking about it's later. Completely not, you know, set up to be that way. What it was, serendipity? Yeah. It's not, yeah. Not so even. I'm almost inclined to forget you, your tremendous chronological blunder in this instance because of how nicely it worked out. And speaking personally, Hansa Teutonica has remained very much in the rotation. It continues to win friends. It is, as it ever was, reasonably dry but very confrontational. I've been pulling out the variant maps more frequently because more people locally have played the base game enough so that we can play the variant maps. I'm getting new appreciation for the Eastern Expansion map and even for the British Isles map, although that latter one I'm a, I'm a little bit more dubious about because it's a, it's a little more... It has a little bit more rules grit than I would like, given how clean Hansa Teutonica is. But anyway, we raved about it, and we're still huge fans. I've been playing it regularly. I believe you have as well. For sure. Love it. It's still one of my best games of all time. It it just, like I said, there's no fiddly bits. It's just straight flow, right in everyone's face. Solid rules. Love it. And it still stands really on its own. Again, as we commented before, I don't want to re- rehash the review. Usually you're able to categorize your games. This is a worker placement game. This is an auction game. This is an action selection game. Hunter Teutonica isn't really about root building. It looks like it's about root building, but it isn't. It's... It, it it's kind of it kind of stands on its own, which is incredibly rare in the Euro design space. Anyway, so go listen to that episode if you haven't already, or just download it a, a fifty times uh, and and delete it after each time to improve our analytics. You know whatever you want to do. So with that in mind, let's talk about the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Let's start with Keyforge because it's blown up everywhere. Apparently, they're getting sold out everywhere. It seems to be doing well. I've been playing it off and on. It's one of those games where you can just you know, throw out a deck. Everyone seems to know it now. So, and every deck, like I said, that almost every experience is a little bit different because every deck plays off other decks differently. So it's very interesting to see how they all go against each other. I'm, I'm enjoying it. 
I'm impressed by the variety that the decks offered. I wasn't exactly sure how different the play experiences would be based on the different deck compositions. But I think I, I'm, I'm rapidly approaching the point when I might be done because Keyforge, uh, one, of the, one of the only unique elements of Keyforge is what I would characterize as the tempo in terms of how creatures enter the field, how they leave the field, how actions are done, uh, and so forth. And I'm finding that increasingly less interesting and engaging with every subsequent play. And some decks and some matchups I find borderline actively unpleasant, which is a per- just a, a personal preference thing. So in the design space of, you know, Magic-esque games, I think I might be done with Keyforge. And even, even with that said, Magic-esque games aren't really my favorite version of two-player games. And in- increasingly, when I have time to play a two-player game, there are many, many other games that I'd rather play. So... It's the popularity is is definitely good for the local scene. It's very approachable, and I still delight in hearing about new deck names. But I think I might be nearing the end of my time with Keyforge. Actually, listening to you, I realize that I don't even think I've considered it a game from the get go. <laughs> really, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, I, well, I never expected it to work. I never expected sure. the decks to work against each other. Now I'm just now that I'm thinking about it, I'm just thinking. I think I'm playing it just to, you know, experience, you know, well, how did this work and how, you know, how unbalancing is this matchup going to be? Much like any games of 504 that I play, it's like, okay, how terrible is this going to be? <laughs> right? I never, you don't expect it to be a good game. I don't expect, you know, this matchup to be good, but I'm still interested to see the outcome. Well, I would, un- I think I just said where you're coming from, but I would put 504 and Keyforge kind of on opposite ends of a spectrum. Oh, definitely 504, similar, 504 yeah. is usually mechanically sound and incredibly unengaging, whereas Keyforge at its best is mechanically wonky but basically satisfying. Uh, so, But both equally not a game. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know about that. I don't want to get into an argument about what constitutes a game, so let, let, less said on that, the better. Somewhat relatedly, partially inspired by the recent popularity of Keyforge, I pulled out Epic the Card Game, which is the 2015 White Wizard knockoff version of Magic. So this was put out by the same people who knocked off Ascension to give us Star Realms, and then knocked off Star Realms to give us Hero Realms. Uh, they knocked off Magic to give us Epic the Card Game. Epic the Card Game gets a lot of flack for some reasons that I understand. It's very wild and uh, somewhat random. But I don't understand quite the level of hate that it gets, especially when I see people really enjoying Keyforge. When it comes to the sort of magic subgenre, magic methadone, as I've heard it referred to in some places, I think that Epic really is the best of the lot. You pay 10 bucks for a deck of 110 unique cards. You can play it the dumb way, which is everyone gets a random 30-card deck, in which, in which case, indeed, you're not really playing much of a game. You just see these wild things happen and, okay, cool, which is fine. But... You get to play a draft mode. You can play a draft mode with multiple people. You can play even a, 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 all the, some of the more weird esoteric draft modes that, that Magic heads get into, but I've never bothered with. Anyway, I there's a lot to like in Epic the Card Game. It's not perfect. But if you told me I had to pick a Magic replacement, it would probably be, be my favorite. And I've returned to it after Keyforge, and I've uh, I still find it delightful, if occasionally very dumb. Have you ever played Epic the Card Game? I did, just the once. It just wasn't for me. It was just, like I said, yet another confrontational two-player card game where it's like, oh, I draw... I I put this characterization on almost every card game, so Epic lovers don't take it to heart. It's just, it's like, oh, I drew the cards that are going to make me win this time, so I win... But I, I find that in, in a lot of these confrontational games. I just happened to get the cards I needed. You didn't, so I won. You didn't. That's my feeling. We... Or I got in a learning game of Teotihuacan, the City of the Gods. 
I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's going to be uh, very interesting to play. Essentially, what you're doing in it is building up this temple. And every other, there's tons of different actions you can take. But it all pretty well means getting resources and getting stuff so you can build the temple and get more points doing it. It looks fantastic. It might be a little too much, you know, because that is essentially what you're doing. And yet there's, you know, all of this stuff to set up, you know, these hundreds of counters and other things. It may be a little overbloated, but we'll see with more plays. I'm looking forward to trying it. Not terribly optimistic, though, I have to say, based on my readings of the rules. It was it, it, it did seem like much ado about nothing, but we'll see. And that was Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. You get to play Argent the Consortium. Argent the Consortium is a game that I've frequently wanted to return back to every couple of years. I've now played it four or five times. They put up by Trey Chambers at level 99. Level 99 got their start with Battlecon, and I'm a huge fan of Battlecon. Walker doesn't like two-player confrontational games because he doesn't win them. And this was put out in 2015, and it was their sort of excess worker placement game. This is a, this is Urgent has a lot going on, despite the fact that the rules are relatively approachable. It's relatively easy to explain. Uh, it's just there are these incredibly interesting spells that come out each in, each with three levels. There are items and supporters and mage effects and other things going on all at the same time. It's you know special powers galore going off constantly. And my biggest knock against uh, Argent the Consortium is its length. It's around three to four hours reliably with people who aren't really, really down on the rules. And I've been told that even people who are super down on the rules, it's still going to reliably clock in in excess of two hours. I I imagine you might be able to get a speed game done if you're really, really familiar. But, you know, the the thing with long games in crowded genres is it's hard to get a group to really, really get that down, right? Because... Why would you play the same three-hour worker placement game four or five times in rapid succession to get it down when there's a whole bunch of really good 60 to 90-minute worker placement games that people can pick up more accessibly? Anyhow, that having been said, every time I play Arch in the Consortium, I like it a little bit more, and I enjoy the different interactions because every playing is radically different by virtue of, of the sea of things. I love the universe that it takes place in. The theme of the game is basically academic politics on steroids. You know, instead of uh, you're all competing for a promotion in the context of a university, but instead of writing snippy anonymous letters to each other to to the the chair of the search committee, you're zapping your rivals' uh, research assistants with magic spells. Uh, so, having come from an academic background, I, I do appreciate that. And I wish that some things were different. Like the core worker placement element of Argent the Consortium, I don't actually find all that engaging because a lot of it hinges on supporters. And so what rooms you have out and what what action spaces are available, a lot of it is just, you know, get a whole lot of supporters. So that element doesn't satisfy me a whole lot. But anyway, that having been said, in another couple years, I'll probably feel like playing it again. And after playing it that time, I'll probably like it a tiny bit more than I did this time. So that's Argent the Consortium. Well, I definitely don't want to downplay the the curve of learning this game, right? Because not only is it worker placement, but each of your workers is different. They all have special abilities. There's like nine different places you can go. But like you said, it mostly out of those nine places, it all funnels down to that one. Like you said, getting supporters and the other ones are just helping you knock out people so you can get in to get the supporters. I still had fun. I enjoyed it, but I definitely would never choose to play it. Mark and I got to play Battle Lore. Still enjoy it just as much as I ever did. Maybe a little too much setup for uh, the, the length of time and the depth of game that it is. But still enjoy just the fact that you still have that full, almost fantasy battle feeling of, you know, these giant lines of troops. And they're all different. And it's like troops that you picked out. And they all have their unique ability. And they all charge forward. I, I still enjoy it. 
Battle Lore, although the setup to uh, second edition, Battle Lore second edition, although the setup to playtime is not ideal, it is probably the best of the Commands and Colors games. Precisely because, as we've commented before, the setup is part of the game. You get to choose which scenario you're doing. You get to do engage in army building, which other uh, Battle Lore games and other Commands and Colors ga- games don't tend to let you do. And, you know, our playing did highlight another aspect of Battle or Second Edition, which is the troop density is very, very low, which helps keep the setup down and helps keep the mental strain down, but it also means that early results can be very determinative. Basically what happened was something happened on turn one that more or less determined what happened on an entire flank of the battle. And indeed, it's possible to rally from that. It's just, you know, it would be nicer if things were a little bit even more evened out because ba- die results can be somewhat fluky in, in Battle Lore. Uh, but yeah, we, again, we stand by everything we said before. Great two-player game, very, very close to a miniatures, a complete miniatures game in a box, and uh, had a great time, and it is definitely one of those games that earns its spot in the rarefied heights of, you know, games that we'll consider when we're, when we're down for two players. Exactly. Got to play a game called North Wind. North Wind is a redevelopment of Starship Catan. This is different, of course, from Starfarers of Catan. Starship Catan was the Cosmos two-player sci-fi version of Catan, and this is a multiplayer version of it. Uh, also by Mr. Catan Klaus Tuber, and here it's about sailing ships rather than uh, science fiction starships trying to get home. And I find that the lack of Catan trappings uh, is to the game's detriment, because one of the things I like about Catan is having these little recipes for things you can buy, and the way the different resources combine together is nice. So in Northwind, you don't trade resources, and there are no multiple kinds of resources for the purposes of buying things. There's just cash, and everything is a function of getting specific resources to get victory points. So that's those are the only recipes you care about. You know, this this city wants wheat and fish this turn, and maybe next turn they'll want something else. It is very simple. Not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction, so it's got a reasonable amount of downtime. But the components are just amazing. We someone commented as we were pulling it out that we'd already gotten the the the, the purchase price for which I paid all of ten dollars for it, merely by virtue of just setting up the the beautiful ships. And I wish it were a lot shorter. I wish the downtime were a lot lower. I don't know if I'll be keen on playing it again, but I did have a reasonably good time with uh, with my experience with Northwind. Yeah, I wish we had stopped right after we pulled the ships out and <laughs> commented on how lovely we it were that and set bad. them up. It, it was bad. It was not that. Oh, jeez. It was bad. Okay. It was. It, it was. What, Want to elaborate I, on? I that? shouldn't say. I will elaborate. It like the the first fifteen minutes wasn't bad, but then you know when you got down to like. The grinding, it was like almost like, you know, World of Warcraft grinding, you're like <laughs> grinding those resources and you're like going over and over again to get the same resources and bringing them back. It just seemed like a task rather than a game. That's fair. I can see where you're coming from. I got Everdale out on the table, which is great. I'm glad that, you know, some of these games get a little few more plays. It's very light, much like uh, Coimbra. Fantastic, you know, intro game. I still stand by everything I said. I wouldn't put those in the same league at all. Coimbra is much more elaborate than Everdell is. Really? I I would. I found Coimbra very minimalistic, in my opinion. It does have, like I said, the dice intricacies, you know, putting them in range. But, you know, after a few plays, you know, it's just, it's the same thing. Like we said, it's just everything's worth, you know, two and a half points. You know, this card or that card, I didn't really think it mattered. Sure, which has, as we said, which makes the game very calculational. And calculation is not really something I associate with Everdell. No, but I, uh, what I, I think what I'm trying to get at is, is that it's much more, it's going to, every game is going to be the same. 
Every time you're playing Coimbra, it's much of the same thing. You know, get the cards that you've already seen. You know, very little wiggle room in your engine building. Very much the same in Everdale. Like, you know, it's it's getting, I shouldn't say tiresome, but that's very negative. But it's like, okay, I'm matching up these animals with these buildings. You know, getting the, you know, it's much the same every time. Although, I've only played it the once, so I can't comment. But you, so your claim is that despite a superficial variety in the cards in Everdale, subsequent playings end up feeling relatively samey. That's correct. Okay. Although there's a lot more in the cards, like the top tier cards for the final scoring, even though they're an odd low number of points, some of them, and uh, the spaces that change up really do do a difference. But it's this the core mechanism of I have this building out so I get this particular character for free is getting a little tiresome for sure. And that is Everdale. So now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. First thing I'd like to talk about quickly in is uh, getting some bad news out the way. One of them is that another Kickstarter appears to have gone tits up, as they say. This is Super Dungeon Explore Legends, which raised $1.3 million for Ninja Division and Soda Pop miniatures. And the people running the project now say that all the money is gone and they're looking for other funding. Now, given the fact that nobody has any product yet and nothing, no backer has anything in hand... What this looks very likely is that unless some sort of miracle occurs and someone shows up willing to put good money after bad, as it were, uh, nobody's going to get anything. Now, I this is the second project that Ninja Division has been involved in that I know of that was miniatures heavy and raised more than a million bucks. And then the creators come forward and say, all the money's gone and you're not getting what we said you were going to give you. And, uh, you know, this is just one of those terrible things about Kickstarter, not just the fact that people put money in and they're not going to get anything out of it, but there's this particular genre of story that I've seen so often now, even in successful Kickstarters, that, that, that make me more or less sick of the entire platform, which is you get to be privy to someone's personal financial disaster. And sure enough, in the case of Soda Pop Miniatures here, I, I don't think they ran off with people's money. I genuinely believe, and I have no difficulty imagining, that the $1.3 million is completely gone, and they don't have any product to show for it. That's just the nature of manufacturing, and certainly it's the nature of distributing, which apparently now everyone is involved in. So you get to hear about someone, get, you know, might be losing their house, or might be engaged in financial difficulties, or now they're, you know, seriously depressed all the time, that in the, uh, in, in the announcement explaining why they weren't getting any money. Now, this has been referred to the Attorney General for Washington State. Apparently, the Attorney General in Washington State has been pursuing other Kickstarter projects where the money has emanesced and nothing to show for it. So who knows if if there's going to be any follow-up for that. But it is a sad story of lots of money and it going nowhere. On the same topic of a sad story and money gone... The stress on the bubble, which a lot of people like to talk about, is the bubble of fantastic games that are coming out, is, I think, a little bit stressed. As Simon reports, $1.4 million loss in this last nine months. And I can see where it's coming from. Like, there's a commercial... The commercial side of our hobby seems to be turning into, for some companies, this huge hype at the beginning. We're going to get this huge hype. We're going to get this huge Kickstarter out, get all our backers, or we're going to create this huge push on the initial sales and then we're going to drop it and move on to the next thing there's no ongoing support there's no it's you know the next best the next big income in and then on to the next project now i'm not sure if this is a reflection of you know why there's a loss or if this is a bad thing or if this is unsustainable but maybe this is you know what's to come who knows 
Yeah, so the revenue over the past nine months, the nine months ending in September 30th, uh, the revenue is down 32.5%. Their profit's down 43.4%. This is obviously not great for CMON. And their Kickstarters have not been generating the kind of revenue that their past Kickstarters did. But I don't necessarily know that this is a sign of a death now. Like, a lot of that money seems to just be going to other creators. I do, however, I have noticed as a consumer that things do seem to be moving towards a periodical model of distribution. You know, you hear about a hot new Euro game and or a hot new whatever game two weeks after it's been released, and it's already sold out everywhere. And there may never be plans for a reprint, unless there's another reprint by Kickstarter. And that is definitely not how things used to be. It used to be that, you, you know, if it was published by Rio Grande, if it was published by Mayfair, it was published by even Fantasy Flight, it was going to be in stock forever, and you could find it places. Not necessarily at your local store, but you could find it somewhere, and it was going to be, there was going to be enough in the, the distribution chain. And so I do definitely agree that that is a downside as a consumer. You have to really, as a result, yeah, it, it, it sort of offloads more of the risk on the consumer. You need to buy something before you know what the general market reaction to something's going to be if you want to get it at all more and more. And that, that I think, is the, the, the biggest problem for me in the current market. I don't necessarily know that this is a sign of a bubble that's about to burst. Maybe this is just a sign of the fact that the market keeps growing and there are more and more competitors for CMON. I don't know. Uh, but it is definitely bad news for that company. And since we like their output, that is uh, somewhat sad. Yeah, and where we see it most of all, I think, is in these uh, these either cooperative or one versus many big squad-based dungeon crawly type games where it's this massive scale Kickstarter with tons of monsters and waves of guys coming against your thing. And there's yet another one out called uh, Reich Busters Project Vril. Same sort of thing. Like the, the production video for this Kickstarter is blows anything I've ever seen out of the water. And uh, the, the hype it creates, like as soon as I watched, it was like, you know, this is going to do great but it's it's by monolith games and and i who knows is it going to be supported after or is it going to be anything else after no it'll be you know that'll be done it'll be off to the next thing which which i'm i don't want to come off as a negative thing it might sound negative it might be bad i'm not sure but it is what it is yeah it's my mythic not monolith i can understand the confusion because you know they cooperated on mythic battles but now it's a monolith thing anyway yeah, no, I, I absolutely hear you. And part of me wishes I could just stop paying attention to all this. But then I start thinking about, you know, that one in 10 project that turns out to have really turned out a, a genuinely good game. Like, for example, on paper, Street Masters could be terrible. It could just be yet another ver- version of that squad-based loads of minis kind of thing. But we both really like uh, Street Masters. And so uh, partially the, the burden of being a high-end consumer is you have to get all this trash and sort through it. But that's why you, uh, gentle listeners, have us to, uh, to take that hit for you. Which I have. <laughs> yes. A little bit of follow-up on the Omega Protocol Kickstarter. I said I was going to keep people updated when and if they updated the line of sight rules, and they have. And uh, shocker of shockers, it turns out I was right all along. Namely that when people always complain about the line of sight rules for Omega Protocol, and they always said, look, I it would be so simple to come up with a version that everyone would like. And I always responded the same way, not really. Line of sight is just one of those tricky things where you're not going to satisfy everybody, and you may think that it's simple, but no two people could agree on the simple, obvious solution, but they were all arguing that it was simple and obvious. And the solution they came out with was a corner-to-corner system, not entirely unlike the corner-to-corner system in Imperial Assault by FFG, but 
it does have a new set of weird wrinkles. One of them is it doesn't have reciprocal LOS. Reciprocal line of sight is one of those things that a lot of people take as a, as a cast iron requirement, namely that if A can see B, B should be able to see A. Well, in the new system, it doesn't work that way. I point this out not because I think it's bad. I haven't played with the new line of sight rules yet. I'm perfectly willing to give them a shot, but then again, I didn't have a huge problem with the old line of sight rules. Just to say that everybody said, oh, it's going to be so easy to fix it. Just just use the Imperial Assault version. Well, Imperial Assault doesn't have cover, so you have to make some changes. And anyway, some things come out in the wash. So they've, they've, they've released the new rules. If you're curious on uh, chasing them down, at least taking a look at their new version, it is available for your perusal and complaints about how your pet version of line of sight is obviously the only sane way to do things. Final bit of news, and this is a ways off, but I just found out about it. I'm kind of enthusiastic about it. Uh, So Mike Hutchison, who designed Gaslands, and by the way, I played half a game of Gaslands last week, and it was great as per usual, is coming out with a sci-fi fleet battle system with Osprey Games again. It's going to be another blue book called A Billion Suns, which is probably enough suns. And it's got a number of very, very interesting ideas. I'm not going to go into too many details because it's very, very early in the beta testing now. But you can go sign up and become a beta tester if you want and go play with whatever Starship minis you have. And uh, I'm very enthusiastic about it. I like uh, fleet battle systems in a sci-fi setting when they're done well. My favorite is probably Talon, which is a GMT game, so Walker will never touch it with a 10-foot pole despite the fact that it's a great game. And A Billion Suns has a number of very, very interesting ideas therein. So I'm looking forward to giving it a shot when and if I'm able to get some minis together because that's not really something I have. It obviously doesn't have one of the key selling points of Gaslands. Gaslands, you can play with Hot Wheels cars. Uh, you can't really do the same. Oh, wow, maybe I should play A Billion Suns with, with Hot Wheels cars. It might work. Maybe that that's what I need to do. Oh, okay, never mind. I take it all back. I'm going to play A Billion Suns with, with, with Hot Wheels cars. That's, that's what I'm going to do. One, <laughs> one, one might say half a billion suns is enough, but I guess they went right to the full billion right off the beginning. Rolls off the tongue better. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. They rounded up. It, it's actually 500 million and one, but True. they just rounded it up to the nearest billion. So. Yeah, it does look better in the box. Yeah, yeah. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now to our feature game, which this week is Gugong, another Kickstarter that just released and everyone is getting their copies. And it seems fantastic. So for the pedants out there, uh, neither Walker nor I speak Mandarin. Neither Walker nor I are well-versed in the various ways to Romanize Mandarin. So we can't render the pinyin properly. We don't speak tonal languages either. The only tones in which I'm fluent are uh, condescension and obsequiousness. So I, I, I'm told that, you know, that you should do things with the tones. We're not going to bother trying because we're not going to do it right. People often assume that I'm a pedant when it comes to pronunciation. I'm really not. So long as people understand what you're saying, you're not obviously reversing the, the, the letter order or anything. And so long as you're within striking distance and you're clear, I think everything's fine. So I realize it's not actually gagong, but it's that that's as close as I'm able to get it. And from what I've heard of, of pronunciation, it, the, the U is kind of an uh, so it's gagong. Anyway, uh, I'm sure I'm wrong. Uh, do not send me any emails uh, correcting me for my pronunciation because I'm, I'm as, I've done my research and I'm getting as close as I can, and I'm, I'm going to call it a day. Anyway, Gagong was designed by Andrea Stedding, which, coincidentally enough, is the designer of Hans Teutonica. Now, the strange thing about Andrea Stedding is if you look at the body of his work, he's got Hans Teutonica, he's got Firenze, Nuremberg, Stouffer Dynasty, and Gagong. And the thing is, those middle three games, Firenze, Nuremberg, and Stouffer Dynasty, uh, I've never played. Have you played any of those, Walker? I have not. 
The reason why I've never played them is because they look, sound, and are received by people I trust as incredibly boring, uninspired Euros. And, you know, life is too short for too many of those, just in the same way that life is too short for a three-hour Ameritrash fest with, with, with sloppy rules, and that's why I uh, uh, avoid much of that as well. I could be wrong if any if, if anybody thinks that any of these are incredibly worthy titles and show the same level of spark that Hansa Teutonica did, or that I think a gong kind of does, then by all means, uh, send a message to support at aircanada.ca. So that's kind of the publication history of... Gagong. It was originally the Forbidden City, but as we've commented before, some other game trademarked the Forbidden City. Walker's very, very upset about this because he doesn't care about the other game and he cares about this one. It's, and what I care about is the only thing that matters. Mark. Precisely. And when you close your eyes, the universe disappears. So you can keep calling it the Forbidden City if you want. Ooh. Yeah. So from now on, when we say the Forbidden City, we actually mean this game and we don't care about the other Forbidden City game. That sounds fine to me. So what do we do in this game that may or may not be called Gagong or the Forbidden City or something that I can't pronounce? All right. It is a hand management game. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the most out of your hand of cards while setting yourself up for the next turn by seeding your discard pile. So what's great about this is it's got a little bit more thematic coherence than a lot of Euro games. This is about 16th century court politics in the, the Ming Dynasty. And everything is about bribery or at least the formalized systems that approached bribery. Your hands, your, your hand cards represent these gifts, and the goal of the game is to give gifts to various administrators, and then they will do favors for you. And then, strictly speaking, it's not bribery because they give you a gift back in return, but they're always going to give you a crappier gift in return. So, in effect, it's, it's, it's preserved. And I'd like to say that this is, a, again, not, not to the extent that Hansa Teutonica is, but it's approaching something novel, because when Walker says that it's about hand management, that's absolutely true, and there's lots of hand management. But I would actually describe it as an action selection mechanism that that is almost like a climbing game. You know, like President or any of those other climbing games or Custom Heroes that we've talked about, where, you know, I lead with a two and someone plays a four and then it goes to six, etc., etc. And the way that it works is on an action space at the beginning of the game, all these action spaces are seated with cards. In order to activate the space cheaply, or at least less expensively, you play a higher card. And this continues until typically you top out at a nine. And the clever bit is that, and there's some sort of vague thematic explanation about how uh, these court administrators skip lunch, and so they're willing to do something stupid for a bowl no, of fruit. it's fruit. Well, it could be exotic fruit. You just don't know what kind of fruit. And the one just happens to be that that type of exotic fruit that that particular magistrate really enjoys. So you, you lucked out, and your one beats the nine. Anyway, yes, yeah, so a one beats a nine, and so that, that's how it continues. And I don't know that I've seen climbing elements used in this way. It's not an auction because everybody gets the transactional benefit as they go up. It's not uh, trick-taking because, again, everyone gets the benefit and you keep going round and round and round up and down in the, the value of these cards. And it's certainly not worker placement, which is the sort of catch-all generic term. I say all these things, not again, not to be very pedantic about uh, taxonomy because I don't really care. Uh, it's just about to try to explain what's going on. I've heard it described as worker placement, which I do not think is accurate even remotely. Uh, because indeed, much of the player interaction is precisely about jockeying for these spots with the number of cards that you have, and you don't really block other people, you just make it more or less feasible for them to get there based on the cards they have in hand. All right, you're taking all my talking points, so I'm going to... Oh, jeez. I'm going to interject here, and the fact that the first time I played this game, I just said, oh, I, I was kind of disappointed, I went, oh, here we go again, you know, it's like obvious I'm going to play, 
you know, a card that's just slightly higher because I want to make sure my next turn is just going to be, you know, not as bad as it should be. So I'm just going to play one higher. doesn't matter where I go. I just want to make sure my hand is because all the spots are relatively the same. And it doesn't matter. Boy, was I wrong. After a few games, this card system, like, comes alive. So there's, uh, when you place it down... If it's higher, then you get to do both actions. And if you want to do, if you don't have a card that's higher, you can still go there. You just have to discard another card or, you know, take another penalty of some other kind. Which is painful. Which is painful. But some of the cards, like we, I just said, have bonus actions on them. So when you go to that space, not only can you do the action on the card, you can do also do the action of the space. Not only that, when you do the discard thing as a penalty or when you get more cards and you put them into your discard pile you're trying to match these dice, which are going to get you more servants for next turn. Not only that, if you get the most of these servants, you're going to get a victory point bonus. I have a full page on just these cards. So, buckle up. <laughs> I thought I took all your talking points, though, Walker. Uh, you, don't to, you don't get to complain about that and say, I'm not, going to talk for a full uninterrupted not page Not only now. that, these cards also do a very unique thing with the first player problem because your starting hand is very unique depending on the player. So the first player will get this deck, second player, and so on. So it's a very unique and cool way to take care of the first player penalty. Now, not only that, it's sort of uh, these cards designate how many turns you're going to have. Like you start with four turns, but then there's this uh, boat action you take on the bottom where one of the bonuses you can get is to get yet another card. So now... Now that you have the extra card, paying, discarding an extra card as a, as a penalty is not so bad. So now you can discard the card that matches the thing, or you can take more actions or more stuff. I'd like to, I'd like to dwell on this particular no, no, point I'm, for I'm just... Still, okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the uh, scattered collection of Walker's random dissociated thoughts show. Uh, so in, in, in Gugong, there are basically two resources that you have access to. There are cards and there are workers. And when you pay the penalty, for example, you have to pay a card or two extra workers, both of which are very, very, very painful. And so everything is very scarce. You have a very, very strong sense that resources are far too limited, which is a matter of taste, but I like it. It's painful, but it's, it's a good kind of tension. And the way all these different pieces fit in with each other is really, I think, what differentiates, helps to differentiate this game from a lot of other hordes of middleweight euros that are not as clean and good as Gugong. Uh, we'll talk a little bit uh, about the scoring later, I assume. But in terms of the way the cards interact with the workers, which interact with how many workers you're going to get next turn, because the way that works is you, you, you chuck these three dice at the beginning of the round, and they're going to tell you a value of card. And for every card of that value you have in your discard pile at the end of the round, you're going to get more workers and possibly points. And so this kind of adds a texture to the hand management. So for example, we talked about paying a penalty to activate a card. You suddenly paying a card as a penalty might not be a terrible thing anymore if it's a card that is going to get you more workers and points at the end of the round. Uh, that's a good way to make sure that you'll be in charge that, that you'll have it because otherwise the card any card you use is going to be out on the board for somebody else to snatch. And so, unlike other unsatisfying Euro games, which we may or may not have talked about last week, instead of a whole bunch of undifferentiated stuff. The things fit together really, really, really nicely, and they feed into the central tension. Because basically, if you boil it down, all you're doing on your turn is you're playing a card and you're taking the associated actions. But all the actions fit together, and the way that that action selection mechanism works with the sort of scarce economy of the game, things really do start to, to ratchet up a notch. So true. You can also play 
higher number cards on spaces to block other players because you know it's not out. And we talk about climbing games. Uh, it has that same sort of mechanism. You don't want to play out all your high cards at the beginning and be stuck with all these low cards at the end, or else you won't be able to get them out, and you have to start playing these, paying these penalties. And then the bonus actions on the bottom, you can start using that as a strategy, right? Only take cards that have the bottom actions that you want. And when you start doubling up actions on a space, it's it seems very powerful. It's like you play the bonus action of the space on the space that you put the card, doubling the action up, and it seems very useful. And just to circle back to something you said before, in your first playings, it is entirely possible that you'll just be like, well, my play is kind of dictated for me. These, This is the space that I can go. But the skill ceiling for Gagong is definitely uh, much higher than it first appears. And it's the kind of thing where even in your second and your third play, you're going to start seeing the subtleties open up to you much more quickly than a, than a, a lesser game or a more opaque game might be. Because you start noticing different ways to gain control over the board spaces, different times when you really have to pay the penalty or the times you have to devote those scarce resources. And so... Although in in first playings it might seem like your cards are limiting you in ways, you really can take a step back and see the opportunities that are present. Yeah, and I like that that feeling where you can see the there's really high numbers on the action that you want to take, and you're just trying to hold out, hoping that someone's going to reset that back to one. Like someone's going to play the nine, take the action, and someone will you know start it back at one, and you'll be able to get that as your last action. I really like the way that plays out. Another really really clever bit that I like is the relationship between the Great Wall action space and the Intrigue track. Not to get too far into the weeds, but the building the Great Wall is more or less an area majority contest. And once a certain number of workers have been placed there, the wall will score, giving you three points, which I think it should be stressed in Gugong is no small thing. Three points is relatively significant. And... The tiebreaker condition is where you are in this intrigue track, and going up the intrigue track is a separate action. So again, these action spaces are linked. But when the wall scores, you get this opportunity to convert intrigue into incredibly precious resources, particularly things like workers or the ability to influence the dice, which will give you more workers and possibly points. And so you're constantly tempted, even as you're winning the Great Wall and leveraging your intrigue, to sap your intrigue so as to get those resources you desperately need. And that interaction, that dynamic, is great, both because it gets rid of dissatisfying tiebreaker conditions, which are the bane of most uh, area majority contests, and at the same time it gives you a little bit of extra flexibility while still competing with all the other players. That that subtle interaction is, is great. Yeah, it's that income that you don't have to pay the cost for, because it's not you that has to finish the wall. As long as you have one person on the wall, then you'll get the opportunity to spend that intrigue and get that little extra income without taking up any of your cards or, or servants. Another bit that is really cool, and this is an element that I've seen before in other games like uh, Quo Vadis by Rainer Knizia, is you have to perform a certain task in order to be able to win the game. You need to advance your emissary to the court of the emperor in order to be eligible for victory at all. And if you haven't gotten to the end of that of the game, you just flat lose. Now, I wish it were harder to do. I'm not I'm not saying that I want like everybody to lose the game or anything like that. Uh, I have yet to see a game where anyone was frozen out of that last position. First of all, because anybody, everybody can get there. And although in the beginning of the game it might seem daunting, it really isn't all that tricky to get somebody to the last base. So I wish it went a little bit harder. But one thing that, again, and this is just, just a highlight to where Andreas Stenning, I think, is, is definitely a more talented designer than a lot of his peers. The temptation in a lot of games 
is to clutter everything up with bonuses and give people goodies all the time. And on this particular track that you proceed in order to be eligible for the victory, there are no rewards along the way. And one player I played with at one point said, I wish there were like a point reward or a resource reward along the way. And I said, no, 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 I'm glad that it's bare. This is the thing you have to do. It's the thing you've got to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to lose. But you don't need to throw more junk at the wall while doing it. Uh, so it, you know, it was, a, it was an uncluttered, nice little element of pressure. I just wish that the pressure were a little more pronounced. Agreed. So that's, we're, that's a space that's very useful. And have I you think, seen, have you seen anyone not get there? No. Yeah. So far in all the planes, everyone's got to the end. So that, that being said, I think almost all of the spaces are, are useful or, or as equally as important maybe some a little more important, like the decree at action that we can talk about it's sort of like end game scoring as well as uh bonuses that you're going to get at the beginning of every turn or bonuses that you're going to get every time you take an action very pleasingly although i think it's more important early in the game it never becomes irrelevant which is nice and then there's the jade uh space which i have written here uh the jade is a sucker's game yeah so that, unfortunately, that space has now become a little redundant because it seems anyone who tries the Jade strategy is not doing so well. But I'm wondering if it's just, you know, maybe not hit it as hard as they have tried it or maybe just, you know, get it to incorporate without using all of your actions up. So there's a relatively small number of sources of points in Gugong. And this, I think, is, again, one of the reasons why I think it's relatively good. We don't like point salad experiences where there's 50 million ways to score points. And one of the ways you can score points is with Jade. And indeed, every time either of us in all of our playings has seen anyone push hard for Jade, it's, it's been a losing proposition. In terms of the resources that it costs, even when they're the only one going for it, it does not seem like a good return on investment. It's a certain return on investment, and it involves less player competition than other players. But as, as a result, it's just so inefficient and I think it's worth noting unsatisfying, comparatively speaking. You might end up with a piece or two of jade at the end of the game by virtue of just incidental things like, well, I mentioned last week, sometimes you reach an inflection point where all you have to do is just eke out that minor, minor uh, that last marginal point. And sure enough, in Gagong, you do that. You know, it's the last turn of the game. I don't need my intrigue anymore. Okay, I'll cash it all in for a piece of jade, which will be worth a point at the end of the game. But honestly, you might do that once or twice in Gagong near the very, very end. Yeah, I wish, I wish jade were more viable. It seems like a bit of an afterthought. True. That being said, uh, all of the scores, I think, have been very close in all the games that I've played. And the fact that there's so many different strategies that are taking place, like we just talked about the Jade strategy, uh, hitting the decrees hard, hitting the wall, you know, generation hard, or uh, the bonus that you get at the end of every turn, making sure that your discard pile is full of these, you know, uh, uh, bonus cards. And the fact that at the end of every game, everyone's within, you know, two or three points, I think that's a great Great sign. Well, not all the, the, the games I've played have been that close. Again, I think there is a genuine skill ceiling in the game, and I have seen people um, win by margins of 20 to 30%, but th- they haven't been absolute crushing blowouts. And again, it's the difference between... It, it's hard to overstate the difference between a game like Gagong where there are multiple strategies but relatively few sources of points as opposed to games where there's a multitude of sources of points but relatively few strategies, right? This is definitely the balance you want to hit. There's lots of different stuff you can do, but it all comes down to a, to a, to a razor focus, a comparative razor focus. This is not a, as tight a game as... Uh, 
say, for example, a Knizia or even a Hansa Teutonica. We're still talking about, you know, four or five major ways you're going to score over the course of the game. But still, in the context of, of, of contemporary middleweight Euro games, that's somewhat of a rarity, and I found it very refreshing. Yep. So it has, let's talk about some of the other spaces, because we haven't really talked about, I want to make sure everyone understands that there is lots to do, and I'm sure everyone will find something that they enjoy doing in this game, because every space has its own, like, little mechanism to it, you know what I'm saying, that they all play out differently, not only on what it does, but on what you have to pay in order to do it. It's either, it is all relatively the same, like one or two servants you have to pay, or but just the way that it works together, it all seems a little bit different. So there's this whole path that you can, you know, travel along and getting these little bonuses and, you know, income hits, and you can look at your cards and say, you know, if I only had this, and you can sort of work it out in a way that, you know, okay, well, I can, you know, move two spaces, get this bonus, and just, you know, get it in just under the wire, and it's like a helpful track if you just need those one or two resources. And that's on the top. On the bottom is this very interesting boat mechanism where you're putting servers out, servants out on the boat. They're going to move along, you know, either by your choice or automatically at the end of return. And if it's full, you can cash it out for these three different uh, bonuses, either points or that extra card or this double worker, which we haven't worked about. And that's yet another very interesting and unique way to play because like we said, you're going to, you're spending servants all the time. This double servant always counts as two, but whenever you take an action that says, get a servant back, you can just take this double servant back and you can rotate that several times in a turn getting, you know, double the servants back. Very fun and unique way to play. For a game that's only four rounds long, So I had two concerns when reading the rules for Gagong before we played for the first time. One of them was that given that there was only four rounds, uh, these sort of infrastructure benefits weren't going to be worth it because you have to devote considerable resources to get that double worker, to get an extra card into your hand so you've got five cards around instead of four. And so I was worried that, you know, you're only going to be able to pull it off near the end and or it wasn't going to be worth it. Well, that was an unrealistic worry because it sure enough, it is worth the effort. It will pay dividends even if you get it late in the second round or, or what have you. I'm not saying it's always a good idea. Sometimes it's not going not gonna to pay off properly. There are, it is a risky investment to a certain extent. But it does give you the sense of being able to grow your capabilities in the context of a relatively short game. And number two, when reading all the descriptions of the different action spaces, I was concerned, well, first of all, that they weren't going uh, to interact in gel properly, that it was going to be an unfocused, sloppy mess, but we've already talked about how they interact nicely. I was also concerned that I was going to get a little bit confused about not remembering how the different action spaces work. Now, with the salient exception of the boats, I still get a little bit hung up on the boats because it's not worded particularly well in the rulebook, but... It is really the case that all the different actions are relatively straightforward and printed in very, very clear iconography on the board itself. So all you have to do is look at this card, say, oh, this card lets me go to the wall, glance over at the wall space. Oh, okay, these are the options that I have when I go to the wall space. So it has that level, again, a level of consistency and a level of transparency that I really appreciate in a game of this weight. It also has another nuance with the servants, because you need these servants to do all sorts of things. And the decrees that we talked about that give you end-of-game scoring and bonuses, you have to keep your servants out there. Now, there's a hard cap on your supply, which is 12 servants. And and you get so many a turn based on the cards or on whatever round it is. 
But those servants that stay out on the decrees, plus the servants that you have out on the boats, plus the bonuses that you get, like the victory points and the double worker and the extra cards, they also will permanently tie up your servants. So you're your cap is slowly going down and you sort of have to decide, you know, when are you going to throw these guys out there, you know, with the understanding that you're going to be, you know, hindered by your, your total. That's one of those traps for newish players that I'm of two minds about. I, I recognize that it's valuable to be able to encourage the kind of long-term planning so you don't end up with supply problems. All of that having been said, I find it especially punishing and unsatisfying to see those new players or to be that new player who realizes at the start of the last round that they've paved themselves into a corner and they do not have enough workers to get anything done on that last round. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm going to say it comes out as a wash. Well, I'm saying, yeah, if you go to the degree where you painting yourself in the corner and is bad, but there's a balance there you must maintain throughout the game. But it's, a balance, but it's a balance that's not evident as you're making those mistakes. It, 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 allows, no. it allows new players to put themselves in a trap. And I'm not saying that every game has to be sunshine and roses for the person who's making bad decisions. I just, I wish that there were a version that could really encourage long-term planning that didn't result like a, in a trap-like situation. That's all. Because it's a trap you're never going to come back from. In, in Civilization, for example, this is a this is a, this is a far afield comparison because they're not similar games at all. But in Civilization, you can end up in a trap where too many of your tokens are committed on the board. Your population is too large, so you don't have enough money left in your treasury, and you end up with a tax revolt. But that is a mistake that you can compensate for later on because it's about balancing these supplies. In Gagong, at the beginning of the game, you figure twelve workers. I'm never going to have twelve workers. I start off with six, and every round I get four. That's crazy. I'm never going to run out. And you know, you make a couple of decisions. And then again, you only find out typically at round four that you've put yourself in a complete corner. That's all I'm saying. Gotcha. Yeah, so I've got a couple other minor criticisms. I mean, I think Gagong is 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 a very good game. I, I don't think it's an uh I don't I don't think it's it's not nearly as good as Hansa Teutonic, I don't think. I don't think it's an unabashed winner. Again, it's relatively clean, but I think it could be a bit cleaner. I wish, as I said, that the Imperial track were a little bit harder. I wish it had that, some real teeth in it. I think that might have increased the competition. I think that would have increased the, uh, the, 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 the sense of challenge involved. And stress. And the stress involved in a, in a good way, again, because yes. the game already has lots of stress in a good way in the terms of the supply of the cards and the workers. I think that could have been nicer. I don't think the player interaction is great. I think that the player interaction is often accidental. You're absolutely right to point out that the different action spaces, you know, every card play has a whole bunch of effects on the rest of the table, but I find that that very often they're just accidental effects. Like, you don't play the seven because you know your opponent has the six and therefore you're depriving them of the space. You play the seven because that's the card you want to play for exogenous regions reasons, and then everyone else gets to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, so, you know, again, a little bit a little bit better player interaction would make me happier. Oh, first, let me just talk on that before we sure. go into something else. I agree with you 100%. It has just the, the usual, you know, worker placement, interaction where I've taken this before you have same thing with the top of the track with the horseman going around I've taken those tokens before you could have so I agree with you maybe yeah more ways to hinder your opponents would have been much nicer the ways where you do get to directly Im- Im- interact with your opponents are so good that, it, again, I-, I wish the other ways were better. So competition over the Great Wall, competition over the Dice of Destiny cards, you know, whoever has the most ones, threes, and nines gets a benefit. That part is great. Filling up the decrees. 
filling up the decrees. Although that's that's just classic. Get there first. Later, later, uh, later movers have to pay more. So that isn't particularly great. And um, one area though where this changes from I wish it had done better to something that I actively dislike about Gagong, which is again that element of. of needing certain cards in your discard pile at the end of the round is so good, but the problem is when those cards come up, they're typically just snatched by the next one or two players there, and that is a huge turn order issue. If you're even playing just a three-player game, you know for a fact that if the person to your right puts down one of those valuable cards, you can just snap it up and you have every reason to do so. Now, sometimes there are exceptions where you can't or really should go elsewhere, but generally speaking, if the player to your right plays those valuable cards, you're going to be you're going to be in a great condition. If the player to your left plays those valuable cards, you're going to be hosed. And forget about a four or five player game because they're just not going to exist. They're going to get snapped up by, you know, the next one or two players. So, you know, that that bit I find a little bit less satisfying, especially since the turn order is I mean, it's not it's perfectly fine in the context of the game overall. Just whoever takes the intrigue action first is the start player next round. So there's no way to compete over second, third, fourth turn order. But given the tremendous importance of these additional cards and what value of cards you snap up, you do get some turn order problems. That and just to circle back to the other thing we talked about, I wish Jade were more consequential. So it's given the po- relative paucity of action spaces in the board, the fact that one of them is borderline useless or or a sucker's game is, is a bit unfortunate. So I think that those are some of the issues that keep it from being truly top tier. But I got to say, compared to a lot of other releases over the past few months, uh, it's, be- it's been really solid. So I, th- I feel Gagong delivers a ton of game for the time and effort that it takes to set up. It's quick to set up. There's a ton going on, and you guys knocked out a three-player game in less than an hour. Yeah, it was about an hour, yeah, start to finish, yeah. And I uh, think it's, and it looks fantastic. The symbology is very good. Little iffy on, like you said, on some of the points and some of the traveling at the top. You have to look them up sometimes. And once you got them down, I think it's it's an all-round great little Euro yeah, you can do a heck of a lot worse. And I really am going to be, I'm probably, if I get a chance to try some of uh, Steading's prior work, the stuff that didn't look particularly interesting, I'm going to, you know, give it a shot because who knows this guy. I mean, look, he's designed Hansa Teutonica. That alone gives him uh, the benefit of the doubt. And Gagong, again, really is so much better than a lot of the other Euro stuff that's been released lately. Uh, it would have... Uh, you know, in, in some ways it reminds me of some of the output that we used to take for granted about 20 years ago. Comparatively tight, comparatively clean, comparatively focused designs. And that is, you know, tends to produce good Euro game experiences. And that is Gugong. Now on to the topic of the week, which is resolving rules disputes. Do you have a, a beginning for this, Mark, or should I just start into my rant? I do actually. I have an observation that I've had over the years, and this is about this is less about rules disputes specifically, but about the way to prevent rules disputes. And there's a two schools of thought about how rule books are phrased or ought to be phrased, and I think both of them are incredibly wrong. One of them is the inclusive way, namely that. A rule book delineates all the things you're allowed to do and everything else is forbidden. 
The other is the exclusive view, which is it is assumed that you're allowed to do everything that is not explicitly forbidden by the rulebook. Both of these positions, I think, are fundamentally conceptually flawed. And this is because no rulebook... I've ever read has told me that I'm allowed to breathe while I'm at the game table. Similarly, no rulebook I've ever read has said that I'm not allowed to choke my opponents at the gaming table. So I don't think the inclusive or exclusive model uh, works at all. I think a lot of this is is, is going to rely on something that's, that's fundamentally core to our editorial policy as well, which is context is key. You're going to have to look to a lot of contextual clues in order to resolve these things and also will be very helpful in terms of resolving rules disputes. So anyway, that's a little bugbear. Whenever I see people show up at the internet and say, well, you know, rulebooks are always exclusive. So if, if they don't tell you you can't do it, you obviously must be allowed to do it. That's nonsense. Similarly, the inclusive view is equally absurd. So I've been well, holding that in for a while. Gotcha. I'm glad I, I, I was just going to say that I always fall into two traps when it comes to rules. The first one is that when, whenever something fiddly comes up, I was I just want to talk away about how the rule was written, or or how it you know uh, interacts with the mechanism, or how it might affect another rule. And apparently, this always comes across as I'm disputing the current rule, or I don't agree with the current rule. When I just enjoy talking about rules and talking about games, yet it comes across as I want to start the, you know that I'm that I'm that I'm coming across as I as I don't I don't agree with it. Here, here's the thing, Walker. <laughs> Because the other <laughs> So in addition to context is key, I would say that the other big motivation for how to approach rules disputes is to keep it moving. You introduce disputes where none exist. I know. You know the way an effect is supposed to be resolved. Yes. You understand how it's supposed to work. One hundred percent. And you know how everyone else knows it's how it's supposed to work. Yes. But you've conceived of a version where you can find no. an interpretation where it works in no. some crazy no, way. That's, that's a and totally, so you just bring it up for no, gigs. No, that's a totally different thing where I make up something silly because the, it's so badly worded that I come up with something silly. These, these it are, always these sounds are, silly to me, Walker. These are other cases where it's like, oh. They look, all sound silly to me. Look look how they wrote this. It, it, they could have just, you know, flipped this sentence around and would have made so much more sense. Anyway, I digress. So how do you feel about in-game rules conflict resolution mechanisms? I'll, I'll bring up the most famous one first, which is the Games Workshop. Whenever there's a rule dispute, roll off and whoever rolls higher wins. I'm sure you're familiar with this. You've read it bunches of times. What, what, what's, what's your opinion on that? That's ridiculous. Yeah, I... <sighs> Yeah, I also, it, it's especially ridiculous because I've heard it abused so badly. It doesn't seem to encourage good faith because if you're going to be operating in good faith, you're going to need to reach some genuine agreement anyway. I remember actually hearing about some uh, real real prince of a human being who started modding his 40K vehicles and saying, oh, well, I mounted a ram on that. It gives me a bonus to, uh, to, to, to melee combat. It's like, well, show me where it says that in the rules. He's like, okay, we have a rule dispute. Let's roll off for it now, which is ridiculous. Or the other one was there's a game that whoever the owner of the game gets to decide whether the rule stands or not. That's asking for trouble. So then, you know, apparently this guy was just making up whatever rules he wanted. Well, it's my game, so I yep. can make the rules. That's what it says right here in the rule book. So it's a just, you know. Blah, blah, blah. I've only found one instance where it works, and that's Gasland's rule of carnage. In cases of rules ambiguity, resolve it in favor of whatever causes the most damage. Uh, not even strictly damage, just the most carnage. And honestly, in the uh, in, in the, 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 the the rules disputes I've had, there haven't been a whole lot, but it's a tabletop minis game, so there's a fair amount of ambiguity tend, tends to be baked into these designs. It's been relatively clear to everyone at the table what carnage is, 
and when there's a genuine ambiguity. So it's actually, I, I found the rule of carnage to be the most successful sort of in-game rules uh, resolution system. Also, there's a few of the one versus many or the co-op games that we've played. I think even the Rise of Moloch has it where it says, if there's any rules dispute or you think there's, you know, it can go one way or the other, then it always goes in favor of the bad guy. It always goes against you. That's the way to do it. Yeah, Kingdom Death Monster, the rule of death. The whenever, rule of there's death. A, whenever there's a rules dispute, rule in favor of whatever makes things uh, lives harder for the survivors. The other place I get in trouble is is that when the person is explaining the rules, always usually doing a good job, but usually I'm too busy stacking my pieces and making little <laughs> little things and seeing how many pieces I can balance things on. So either I didn't hear the rule or I didn't hear it properly, and so I base a whole strategy around what I thought I heard or what is completely wrong or just made up in my head. And then when it's you know explained to me that you know I'm I'm completely off and doing it wrong. I get mad at myself and it comes across that I'm getting mad at the rules explainer or mad at the other people at the table when I'm just like mad that, you know, that I didn't pay attention when I should have. Sure. So I found myself in the context of adjudicating special abilities, adjudicating cards, adjudicating events. Uh, Initially, it was a statement about my disposition towards a specific ruling, but I've actually found more and more that it's now a statement about me. And that is, I'm inclined to be permissive. I've said this a bunch of times. I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say it a number of times over the course of things. You know, someone says, does this card let me do the following thing? And I find myself over and over saying, well, I'm inclined to be permissive. This is not saying that I, uh, that I, that I believe that, you know, all effects are exclusively written. And if it doesn't say you can't, then you can. But just that, generally speaking, when a lot of these corner cases and a lot of rule disputes are about special powers, are about things that break the normal course of, of rules. And generally speaking, I'm inclined more and more, almost independently of the game, is to let someone do the fun thing. You know, they've got this thing that, that, that says that they get to do something fun. Let them do the fun thing. I mean, I'm more interested in making sure that everyone gets to do a fun thing than I am about a game being perfectly balanced. And furthermore, generally speaking, in games with lots of special effects, it's really hard on first blush to tell what's balanced and what's imbalanced. We've all had experiences where we hear about a special power and say, oh, well, that's crazy broken and obviously the best. And someone with slightly more experience says, eh, trust me, you'll see. And then, sure enough, we see. And in a lot of the better games, that that's that definitely tends to be the pattern. So more and more, I'm inclined to just let people get away with whatever results in the most stuff. Call it the the, the slightly less violent version of the rule of carnage. True. That's what usually what I think when we play is what we usually do is that if it's a rule that that doesn't that affects everyone equally, then we just let it wash out. We'll say, oh, we'll we'll look it up later. We're going to play this way for the rest. And if it's that way, well, it affected everyone the same, so it really doesn't matter. That being said, Mark, I was wondering what, say, in, if you're in the middle of the game and you know that the person has uh, interpreted something wrong or done something wrong, how do you how do you bring that to attention? Or do you, like, do you stop the game or do you say, no, it's not done that way? Or how do you, how do you resolve that situation? I'm probably, this is where my pedantry comes in. I will insist on the rule being followed properly if I know that that is the way the rule works. If I'm not 100% sure... Uh, then I will try to quickly find a ruling. And if I can't immediately find a black letter ruling somewhere in the rule book or the associated documents that explains the situation away, again, I'm inclined to be permissive and let the person do the thing. Uh, but again, my general impulse is to keep the game moving and to let people do what they want to do within within reason. Now, sometimes you end up in particularly thorny situations where your fun thing means I don't get to have as much fun because your ability, your interpretation 
of your ability locks me down or prevents me from doing an ability or what ha- or completely wipes me from the board or what have you, there things get very difficult. And there you really have to hope that you're dealing with people who are care more about the overall situation than than their chances at victory. Uh, so you know sometimes that leads to tension and frustration. And tension and frustration are things we've talked about elsewhere. But you know more uh, generally, I, I found that if you very early on set a an attitude of permissiveness and letting people do fun things, then I, that tends to rub off and other people start extending that benefit of the doubt to other players as well. Gotcha. I, what I was going to bring up is the fact that sometimes when I think there's a rule going wrong, I usually look, grab the rule book, find it, and then, you know, when there's a quiet time, I'll show the explainer, like I'll say, you know, just read this one paragraph and let him deal with it and then he can either, you know, just ignore it and let it just go on the way it's going on because it's not affecting anyone or, you know, say, okay, well, since we all, you know, we've, we've all played our first turn, we've, we've, we've done this as well. It's like, okay, well, the, in the first turn, we don't use this rule. This is a second turn rule. Right. And I really feel like, and the other thing is I I seem to have the, I feel I have this weird second sense where when a game's going on, I seem to sense this fiddly bit where, you know, they say this is what's happening now. And I just feel that that is not right, that there's something weird going on. So I'll, I'll grab the book and sure enough, you know, you know, they misinterpreted or misread, you know, how it's supposed to go. Well, I feel like you're really going to coddle rules explainers that way. The appropriate response when someone has gone out of their way to explain a game and they've got something wrong is to insist they stand up in the middle of the table and everyone point and laugh at them. And that is the only way that you should reward someone for for sticking their neck out in that fashion. But yeah, I agree. And again, this falls under the aegis of keeping it moving. You should, you know, when when it comes time to consult the rule book and discover whether or not something has gone wrong. Ideally, you don't want to have to go back and undo things. Just accept the fact that you applied it wrong the first time and you're going to apply it right going forward. Furthermore, if you've got a card in in your hand or if you have a special effect or something, don't be so concerned about surprising your opponents. And find a quiet moment when you get to ask the rules explainer when it's not your turn and it's not their turn by the way, I think this does X. Does it do X? And that is a great way to, to do it. I'm, uh, you know, the number of times when someone just assumes that it's going to work work a certain way, and then they get snippy when they're told that it doesn't. When very easily they knew it was contentious. They, you can tell by the way they're playing the card. They think, well, I think it works this way. It's like, well, if you thought it worked that way, you might want to be sure. And if you don't want to be sure in advance, that's fine. Just don't get don't get snippy or pissy when it turns out that you were wrong. Uh, so a lot of it is can can be resolved with respect to attitude problems. I usually just beat them with the rule book over and over until they agree with my interpretation. Yeah, like a rolled up, rolled up newspaper. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of of how to interpret these things, though, I I do agree with you that. After a time, sometimes you get a, a certain sense about something sticking out in a way that you don't think makes sense in, in the context of the rules. There's this philosopher named Paul Grice who, who wrote something called Logic and Conversation. And it's about implicature and it's about how a lot of meaning is conveyed under what he calls the cooperative principle. And, you know, just as an example of this to, to, to get somewhat nerdy, if I ask you how many cats you have and you have 13 cats and you say, well, I have two cats, you've clearly lied to me, right? Even though factually speaking, what you uttered is correct. Factually speaking, yes, you do have two cats, but then you have 11 more. You know, stuff like that is is where we get to in, in the field of pragmatics. And that's the kind of stuff that Grice was talking about. And indeed, you try to look at the broader context of the vocabulary 
vocabulary and of the language of the game to try to figure out how they use terms. We did this actually when uh, doing when when looking at Arjun the Consortium. We had a couple spells, and we had a question about whether or not certain spaces were eligible for the effect of a certain spell. And again, my interpretation was, well, let's be permissive. I'm inclined to be permissive, and I I, I checked briefly at the rule book, but I couldn't find a, a quick answer. And then you pointed out, oh, but by the way, there's this other spell that clearly seems to imply by virtue of how it works that it works differently from this other thing, blah, blah, blah. And we were able to infer from that uh, an answer to the rules question, and it turns out, I did some research later, we were entirely right after the, 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 the further interpretation. So sometimes you need to look at the broader context of the universe of game effects, and that's really going to help you do things. But again, uh, that's only if you can do it right away. If you find out a couple turns later it's best not to adopt an attitude about undoing things. The best way to resolve rules disputes in that way is maybe it's now baked into the fundamental rules of, of your current session of the game, in which case play it forward, or just say that this is a turn two rule and you're going to play it forward going for, going forward. Got you. Speaking of, let's, let's just say it's a turn two rule. Here's some other great sayings that I love is, well, if I had known it worked that way, I wouldn't have blah, blah, blah. So, i.e., they didn't listen to the rules explanation, and now that they've done it wrong, they think the whole game is point and mute, and if he had only known it worked that way, then they would have done it differently. Sure, but sometimes the rule, you know, the rules are explained in a faulty manner. <laughs> and then there's the person that says, well, let's just start playing and we'll figure it out as we go. And then halfway through, they're not doing so well. And it's like, well, you're the one that said, let's get going without explaining all the rules. So guess whose fault it is? Well, yeah, actually, you know, that's a good point. One of the reasons why I err towards a comprehensive rules explanation as opposed to the, well, let's just get, get, get going is... In-game rules discussions, in-game rules conflicts are some of the, have the potential to be some of the worst moments of the hobby and are, even at the best of times, never very good. I don't find it very intellectually stimulating. This is one of the this is one of the reasons why I don't like your your, your constant insertions. I, first of all, my fight or flight instinct starts starts perking up because again, some of the worst behaviors come out in these contexts, and I never find it particularly engaging. I'd rather be playing the actual game, and so I find. I find that the whole, well, let's, I, I've, I'm just going to explain 5% of the game. Let's just start playing. It's like, oh, great. You're asking for problems later on. You're just baking into the system now. And that is one of the reasons why I object to it so strongly. Co-ops is what I'm going That's where I get to be a super stickler to the rules because I find that the co-ops are, are based on the rules. Like if you don't follow the rules almost exactly right, then then you're gi giving yourself a huge advantage because this whole thing has been set up by the designer to put these, you know, limitations on you and or problems to face. And if you don't follow them correctly, then you're bypassing some of the me mechanisms of the game and therefore you might be getting an easier time of it. So this is why when, when people get a little agitated at me, during co-ops because I really like to be a stickler. This is, That's usually the only time that I'm a stickler for the rules is in co-ops. That's fascinating. I'm exactly the opposite. One of the things I love about co-ops, and I was actually going to comment on this, is it doesn't matter how wrong you are about the rules because balance is almost entirely irrelevant because no one's going to get their nose bent out of joint if the game is too hard or too easy, broadly speaking. Unless they're unless they're particularly narrow-minded about co-ops and they insist. Like, you prefer that co-ops be very hard, but you don't insist that co-ops be no. very hard. Whereas 
the moment things get competitive, people's noses get out of joint. That's one of the great things I find about playing a co-op game. I don't know the answer. I don't immediately know the answer to a rules question. I don't even need to check the rule book. Just make an instant ruling. Who cares? The worst you're going to do is make things a little too easy or too hard. I find it so liberating. I have I partially agree with that, but I, I hate to I hate to get to the end of it and find it was like so completely easy because we've bypassed all these rules that we should have hit. Yeah, I never mind at all. I make the 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 my willingness to just make stuff up in the context of difficult rules questions in co op games. Now I, I try to be open about it. It's like I don't know. Let's do it this way. And then if other people say, well, I think it'd be more fun if we do it the other way. Fine, whatever. I'm not advocating rules hacks. I'm not one of those guys. I don't start introducing house rules in the middle of our first playing, and I do know people like that. And we've talked about how these people deserve our incredible condemnation. It's just that if we don't know how something works, I, I'm I'm less confident that the right answer is more important in the context of co-ops. That's all. Yeah, keep the flow going. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I just find it so liberating. And and the other thing that I'm being very guilty of lately is stopping mid-sentence. I was not bad at this at the beginning, and we had people that were bad at it that we made fun of, and now I am totally guilty of this, where you read a sentence until you get to the part that helps you or what you want to hear, and then you stop. And you don't read the whole paragraph where, you know, it says, except when, or unless you've got, or stuff no- like that. Yeah, the number of times in our group where, and it's usually the same couple people that just start repeating it over and over, where the rules dispute is solved by read the rest of the card, read the rest of the card, read the rest of the card. And sometimes it's not even the rest of the card. Sometimes it's just finish the sentence. And it's one of those cases where someone's doing something and, and we've read the card before and we remember what it says or we have a copy of it on our hand. Is it finish the card, finish the card, finish the card. Those at least are easy rules disputes to solve yeah. because they're not even genuine rules disputes. It's just someone being ignorant of the text in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> So there we go. We both agree. Keep it moving. Generally speaking, be permissive where possible. Keep it fun. Well, yeah, one would hope. So thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. If you didn't like it, tell no one. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>